Well, uh, we are approaching a big weekend next weekend, as Brother Ken uh, here at Northview has said for the last couple of Sundays, that we are involved in a new church plant, and coming this August, uh, we'll be up there full time instead of Sunday nights here at Northview. It'll be right off the road, about 8.5 miles, at an elementary school called Pecan Creek Elementary School. There are currently 43,000 people in a three-mile radius around this elementary school. No churches there at all. That number is only going up. By the, in the next two years, that number is supposed to be 53,000 people, and it's, there's no church yet there. So we're going to be using the elementary school. We went up there and met with them again this week, and everything is going really well with that. Next Sunday night, we will not have a service here at Northview. Every couple of months, we're going to do one Sunday night service at the school, kind of getting our feet wet there, introducing ourselves to the area. And if you came in tonight, you should have been given. If not, there's a bunch out there by the coffee, a little card that says the church at Pecan Creek. That is the official name of it. And on the back, it gives you the dates. So you will not accidentally show up here and you're the only one here. All right. So you will be able to see the dates, put this on your refrigerator. It's not a lot between now and August, but there are several times that we'll be meeting up there. This first one, this next Sunday night, is a very big night, and we're inviting all everyone we can. Pastor Ken will be there, Brother Rob will be there, as many Northview people as we can, as many people who are who are thinking they might want to be a part of this or just want to pray, support, or just see where it's at. Whatever reason, we're just asking everyone to come. The more people that know about this new church birthing, the better, the more news will spread. So we encourage everybody to be there, invite people to be there, come see where this is going to be happening. So again, on your way out, make sure you get that card. And also, if you notice at the top of the card, we have officially launched the new uh, website as well, thechurchatpeconcrete.com. So instead of me standing up here and giving you all the details about it, uh, you can view that, thechurchatpeconcrete.com, and all the information is going to be there for you. So check that out, and remember, next Sunday, put this on the refrigerator to remind you that uh, we're going to be right up the road, just right up the interstate, right behind Bill Utter Ford. And uh, you'll also find out if you arrive at the front of this elementary school, you really can't get back to where we're at. The parking lot is blocked. You actually have to drive to the back of the school. So there's a little distance involved. So if you drive to the very front, you'll notice oh, I can't get back to the cafeteria here. So you've got to go to the back entrance and the directions are there on the website. But you need to go down a road called Pockers Page. We'll get you there very quickly. But we're going to be in the back cafeteria in the back of half-court gymnasium there is where the church is going to be located. So keep all of that in mind. All right, we're in the book of Hebrews. Let's begin there. And we've uh, started on chapter 1. And I am trying my best to do one chapter per message. But I have been accused of being long-winded, and this is very tough to do. But uh, we, we start very quickly. Let me just review chapter 1. It is a beautiful chapter that is is just made to exalt and lift up Christ, who He is. And the sermon series is simply that that Jesus is greater. And the writer, the author of Hebrews, uh, just puts this in so many ways in this opening chapter. Just within the first four verses, he gives the, these different titles to Jesus. I'll read them very quickly. He says, He is the prophet through whom God has spoken, that He is the Son of God. He is the creator of all things. He is the heir of all things. He is the representation of God. He is the upholder of all things. He is the priest who provided purification from our sins. He is the king who sat down 
at his place of honor and the one who is superior to all man and all angels, celestial beings. So obviously you can tell there he is saying that Jesus is greater. There is no one in the created order, the celestial order. There is no one higher than him. He is fully God. All things have been given unto him. So he is the alpha. He is the head. He is the superior one. Ultimate authority rests in him. He created everything in him. We live and breathe and have our being. So the author builds this case. This is who Jesus is. Now let's turn to chapter two. Chapter two begins in this way. Therefore, we must pay attention, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, before we go any further, as you study the Bible, and I was taught this years ago, but anytime you see the word therefore, it is always good to make a middle note to think, what is it there for? All right. So he starts off, therefore, why is he saying this? Therefore is a carryover of an argument that he has just laid out. And here, the argument that he has just laid out is that Christ is superior. There is no one higher than him. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So that therefore is therefore to make us realize who he is. Remember who I just said he is? That's why we need to pay attention to what he said and what we have heard. Why would the author here need to challenge the believers to pay much closer attention to what they had heard? Think about that. Well, I mean, this is this is one generation, the next generation after Christ. The author, uh, we believe, did not know Christ personally or witness or see Christ personally. So this would be the very next generation, those right after him. Uh, why is it that he was already reminding these people to pay much closer attention? Because they were already drifting away. I mean, that quickly it can happen. If they did not pay closer attention to these truths, then what would happen to them according to this verse? They would drift away from that truth. Uh, this is something that was going on then. It's something that is going on now, even in, our, in today's times. Uh, a book that came out not too long ago had to do with the fact that the title of the book was uh, The Last Christian Generation, that the information is not being paid enough attention to. The Word of God is not being exalted uh, in churches, in families, in private lives. It's not being lifted up. It's not being read. It's not being studied. And we're losing all the details. So it's really just a closed book that says Bible on top, and we say we believe it. And Christians, if you can still say they are, are no longer paying attention to what is inside of it. So they're drifting away from it. They're drifting away from clear godly commands, clear godly lifestyles that are laid out, and no longer do Christians even know what they believe. The next thing you know, you have people who are saying they're Christians who don't even have true faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. They're drifting away from it. So this is a very bad thing. They were drifting away from it then because they weren't paying enough attention to, weren't paying close enough attention to God's Word, and they were commanded to do the same exact thing today. Uh, many reasons why people are distracted or, or drifting away from the Word of God, and one of them is simply because of that, uh, we are distracted. Our minds are always occupied. I'm saying we, just kind of humanity in general here. Hopefully it's not all of us in this room. But we're distracted. We're 
TVs are on and their phones are on and people are doing Facebook and, and Instagram and all the social media while checking email, while watching TV at the same time. And some people are doing all those things as they drive down the road too, you know. So it's just constantly distracted. But 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 humanity right now, especially here in the U.S., it seems like our brains are always occupied with with media, with things, with this, with that, with that, with the job, with the career, with with this, with this problem, that problem. And we're so occupied that we're so distracted that we forget to pay attention to what is most important. Uh, we get distracted. I put this quote down. I believe it have, you have it on the screen there. A mind that is always being entertained accomplishes nothing for God. If the reason that you exist each day is for your mind to be entertained with media, music, TV, um, even depending on the books, books or around people, whatever it is, if your mind is always just entertained, then in the end it's accomplishing nothing for God. Other uh, reasons people are drifting away from this, not paying close attention. Uh, the Bible is not being taught uh, in the homes anymore. Uh, early after the Reformation, uh, these things called catechisms, we think of this now and we think Catholic churches only have those, but these things called catechisms begin to come out, a way of, way of getting the core content of the Word of God delivered over to children and teenagers and raising them up in it. Over the years, that method kind of drifted away. And no longer is much of anything being used in our homes. Think about how many families we know that, that read the Bible and study the Bible together with their family. They're, they're few and far between. And that's not the way it used to be. Uh, the family was the primary educator in spiritual things. So we're drifting away from it even today. Uh, the Word of God is not being read personally or privately often. Uh, many people, I say around 90% of Christians people who attend church at least, uh, do not even read their Bible during the week. Uh, are we paying closer attention to it, or are we then drifting away? It's one of these things that if we do not read it, if we don't pay close attention to it, what happens to us is the very same thing that he warned them would happen to them. They drift away from that core knowledge that is, we're supposed to be relying on. Even churches in general, if you Look at a televangelist or popular TV preachers or even churches, some churches in the area perhaps, that the Word of God, they might say that they are a church and say they believe in the Word of God, but that you attend it or you hear it on TV, and it's more of a positivistic, motivational message that kind of acknowledges that there is a deity, but that's it. It's more just therapeutic, more like a counselor session that you go to, smile, be happy, God loves you, the end, all right? Was that the message? Was that a sermon? Was that the Word of God? Uh, most most pastors in most churches will preach through around three verses, maybe four, every time they get up to preach. So if a believer is only relying on the preacher's actual verses each week to supply them with the Word of God, it would take 50 years to get through the entire Bible one time. Think about that for a moment. I mean, by the time you're 50, you've already forgotten everything that you already learned before, right? I know if your mind is like me, not to call you out, but to call me out, I forget things all the time. But 50 years to get through the Word of God if you're only depending on a pastor to go over a few verses with you one day a week. But if you're getting in the Word of God all the time, if you're paying close attention to it, then you're not drifting away. You begin to see your lifestyle lining up with the lifestyle that God has commanded us to live that your beliefs, your doctrine are held strong and solid because you're, you're checking them constantly in the Word of God. You're not making up your own belief system. You're relying on the Word of God. So what is the solution? It is the solution here that He gives, and the solution is still the same today, 
is to pay close attention to what we have heard and what we God has given us in the Word of God. As David said, to not neglect the Word of God, but to live in it, breathe it, want it, desire it. That's where our strength comes from. All right, moving on to verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I'm not going to go into great detail with this, but the writer here is saying that the angels were involved in the deliverance of the original law to Moses and that, as was covered in chapter 1, that Christ is much higher than the angels. The angels were created by Him. He is God. And that the law was given to us by angels. We don't exactly know the details of this, to be truthful with you. It is somewhat of a mystery. It's alluded to in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, if you want to look it up later, how the angels were involved in giving the, the law to Moses. But here the author is picking up on that, saying that was done with the angels, kind of a mediator between God and man. But here we have God. We have the incarnation. We have Emmanuel, God with us, who has commanded us and given us this. So how much more should we pay attention to this? Verse 2 says that that message was reliable that the angels delivered. Uh, and, and also the message they delivered, if they transgressed or went against that message, they received a just retribution. If you broke the law of God that he had given, you were punished as a person and Israel would be punished as a nation as well. That if you broke that law, there was punishment. Now in verse 3, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now this message has been proclaimed by God Himself. The very God who created us has provided the source of salvation through Jesus and what He accomplished on the cross. He takes our sin for us. He takes the wrath for us and has provided the one and only way of salvation. So what is our escape? How on earth could we escape if we neglect this salvation that was given to us by God alone? Is Jesus truly the one and only way to heaven? Nod your head if you believe yes. Absolutely. He is absolutely the one and only way to heaven. And that's what the author is saying here. It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer of there is no escape. There is only one way to escape the wrath of God. And that is if the wrath of God has been poured out on someone that could take it to pay the price for you. And that is Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, carry on here in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now there's a lot in this passage here, but he is saying that this... <clears throat> This salvation, this great escape, the only way that we have to escape the wrath of God, the only way that we can be saved, it was declared by Jesus Christ Himself. He said, I am the way. You know, there is no other way. But also it was attested to these people that He was writing by the apostles, by those who followed Christ. And then verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. As we look over the Bible and whole, as we look over the history of humanity as a whole, we see three main eras 
where the where signs and wonders and miracles were extremely common. We have them extremely common around Moses and Joshua when the law is given. We have them extremely common around Elijah and Elisha. But we have more miracles than all the Bible combined over here, or the rest of the Bible combined, surrounding uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, and his disciples. It's a time where Jesus, God points supernaturally. They are called signs because they're there to point the way. There are these miracles happen because they are supernatural. Uh, men don't just go out and walk on top of water, right? Uh, that's just something that I can't do, you can't do. That is a clear sign from God. When Jesus raises someone from the dead that's been dead for four days, that's not something that naturally can happen. It is supernatural. It is a sign meant for, meant for everyone that witnesses this to say, look, God is doing this. And this was attested to by God. So the writer here is saying that it's not just a made-up story. It's not just something that man has created to say that Jesus is all of this, but we have the supernatural signs that man can't muster this stuff up. We can't make this happen. Only God can invade this realm and supernaturally move and put these signs in place. So he says that by signs, by wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So it's just proof after proof after proof after proof that this message of salvation that is proclaimed by Christ is the only one. There is no other way to heaven. This is it. Jesus is the highest source of authority anywhere. He is God and there's no escape if we don't go through His way. Jesus' way to get to heaven. Let's carry on to verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made for you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, the author here pulls from the Old Testament, and I mentioned this last week, but Hebrews is, is, is debated, debatably one of the most, if not the most, richest theological books that we have in the New Testament. It draws heavily from the Old Testament, and the writer uses the Old Testament, the quotes from the Old Testament, to establish his points, saying that, hey, I'm not just making this up, this is not just my opinion, but I'm pulling from God's Word to show you what is being done here, who Christ is. This is the one who was prophesied, all right? And here, he's put down some verses that are just showing basically how amazed, how humbled that we should be. That, that I mean, what is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, what a great question. And we really don't have the answer to it. I mean, think about that. What does God owe us? Does God owe us anything? He owes us nothing. It is purely by grace, that unmerited favor that He bestows upon us through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are in right relationship with Him. But why? Why has He done such a thing? Uh, and, and to some degree, it's a complete mystery. God has bestowed and chosen to, to create mankind in His own image. But then even when we sinned, uh, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, that could have been the end of it. I mean, anytime we sin, we deserve the punishment of God, but we, we are still here. 
that there is this mercy, this grace that comes from him. And the writer here is saying, what is man that you're even mindful of him? I mean, you spoke and you created us. We're mere mortals. Uh, We deserve your wrath. We sin against you. But yet, verse eight, you're putting everything in subjection under his feet. And that Jesus he's speaking of here and that Jesus, God in the flesh, puts flesh on. That is Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends to heaven as he maintains his manhood. He maintains his manliness, his his flesh, that he is God, but yet he is man. And now everything is subjection to underneath this God-man. That he has all power, he is man, he is God, and not only are you mindful of him, but you, you maintained his figure, his form. He, he is God. Jesus has taken on this. It's amazing to think of and that we get this position of authority as well as children of God. So the, the author here is just saying, what is man that you're even mindful of him? But yet you've done all of this. And then even our position right now, it appears to be lower than angels, but in the end is truly higher than the angels. Uh, carry on here. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. Verse 8. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the great, you might say, humiliation of Christ. He came not in glory, but he came as a lamb to be slaughtered. He came to to be uh, uh, the humble servant, but he will come as the conquering king. So here he is saying that, yes, we saw him like this. He suffered. It was a brutal, horrible death. He went through hunger pains. He went through thirst pains through during his life, as we do. The God who created everything, who can have everything he wants, anything he wants, he is all powerful humbled himself to put on flesh and live like we did. He was tempted by Satan himself. He was spit upon. He was he was whipped. There was no flesh left on his back. Crown of thorns on his head. Bag over his head. They'd punch him and say, who hit you? If you are you know, a prophet, if you are who you say you are, tell us who hit you. They plucked his beard from his face. This is God, remember? I mean, this is the one who created everything. Yet his very own creation comes up against him and causes him to suffer They strip him nude, hang him on a cross. They spit on him. They make fun of him. They humiliate him in front of everyone. This is the humiliation of Christ, the suffering of the death, so that he, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He does this. This everyone, as we'll see, is not for every person who has ever been made. We are not universalists. We don't believe all roads lead to heaven, but it is a specific people that he was paying the price for on the cross. But he takes that death for us. He suffers for us. It was not only the wrath of mankind against him, but it was the wrath of God himself. God the Father, for all sin of all time, of all believers, was poured out on Christ, and he takes that for us. So he humbles himself to that point. Philippians 2, verse 5-11, through 11, I have it up there, I'll try to go quickly. But you might have heard heard of this verse, read this verse before. Very similar point to what the author of Hebrews is saying at this point. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves. In other words, be like this, humble. Which is yours in Jesus Christ. 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, it's the humbling and then the exalting. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying here. And now we don't see everything in subjection to Him, but one day when it's all done and when the final judgment comes and sin has been paid totally put where it's supposed to be, sinners have been put where they're supposed to be, Satan and his demons, then we fully see the ultimate judge. We fully see God. We see Jesus, the King of everything. So the day is coming where we will see everything subject to Him. Verse 10, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, again, a powerful point that the author here drives home, is that this is Him that created everything. The very Jesus I'm telling you about is the very Creator of the whole world. So for it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now if we go back to verse 10 here, we see that yes, He created everything and all things are created for Him. So that all glory goes to God. So as through, for whom and by whom all things exist and with, and bringing many sons to glory. Verse 10 kind of clarifies verse 9 in case someone was thinking that Jesus died for everyone. All sins are not paid for. If all sins were paid for, then all would go to heaven. But it is those who he calls sons and he brings those sons to him. All those that the Father gives Him. As John chapter 6, verse 37 says, those are the ones whose sin He has paid for. And if we go down uh, a little bit further, we see this, that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Sinners need purification. And even perfection in order to be in the presence of God. Uh, how can we do this though? We can't do this on our own but it is through Jesus Christ. Everything that we are, who we are, our reliance for our salvation, are the center of the gospel that we rely on for our souls to be saved is in Jesus. That He takes our suffering on Himself and, and takes the pain and takes the wrath of God for us and, and is our substitute. What we deserve, He takes on Himself and, and takes the payment for it and pays the price for it. He suffers, pays the price, and is now fully restored, perfectly made, uh, body fully restored. And this goes for all who are His sons. We have this to look forward to. Verse 11, For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. We are called to live a life of sanctification. And this simply means that we're called to get better and better and better not relying on our own strength to better ourselves, but relying on the source of our sanctification, which the writer here says is Christ Himself. That He is the one who sanctifies 
and those who are sanctified all have one source. So what is the source of our sanctification? It is the one who sanctifies. It is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we are commanded to live holier and holier lives. Uh, hopefully you can look back. It's a new year. Uh, many people have a little bit, a bit of a moment of uh, introspection and retrospection, kind of looking back and looking in. And uh, what are you doing better now than you were last year? If you look at your progress on, on sinning less and pursuing God more, are you becoming more and more sanctified? Are you really addressing the sin that is there and putting it away and subduing it by pursuing Christ and godly living more? And the source is always not just me. What can I do? But the source of this sanctification is Christ and relying on Him. So this is the road, the, the path that we're on. Like a famous book from years ago, Pilgrim's Progress. It is a journey and our Christian life is a journey where many things are happening, many situations come in, many temptations come in, but we want to continue down this road sanctifying, becoming the holier and holier person. Now, not that our salvation or entrance into heaven is based on that, but due to our salvation, we should be desiring to become a holier person. All right, So I don't want that uh, to confuse you. And final process of our salvation is called glorification. And uh, God brings us up to par, up to where we need to be. He brings us to the perfect righteousness of Christ. So no matter where you were in that sanctification process, uh, those who are saved get the righteousness of Christ. And that's why we do get to go to heaven. But the, the center of all this and the source of all this is Christ. I'm just going to read uh, one passage here out of 1 Thessalonians. You can turn there if you'd like to. It's chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. It says this. Um, go ahead and turn here. Some of you turning. That's fine. There's quite a few verses. But regarding our sanctification, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8 says this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. So it is an increasing. It's not that you're just saved one day and then you walk out of church and live like you were living, right? But it's a more and a more. It is a growing process. The Bible will often say as a plant is planted and produces fruit and grows bigger and stronger and, and the healthier the plant, the more fruit there is on it, that, that our Christian life is supposed to be that way as well. You are you have the seed. It has been planted. It's made alive. Your salvation is real. But now grow. Continue on the race, Paul says. So do so more and more. Verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, this, this holiness this, that you should be living in now that you are saved. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So again, the, this Thessalonian passage is just pushing us forward. Don't settle for where you're at now, but constantly battle your flesh. It is a battle every day. 
to put away sin, to control the thoughts, to take every thought captive, to live as Christ wants us to live. And it should be an increasing uh, journey, that fruitfulness, uh, increasing in this more and more sanctification, uh, a process of becoming holier and holier that should be the habit of our lives. Uh, can a person become sanctified without Christ? Uh, this is a very important question. Can a person become sanctified without Christ? And the answer is no. It is impossible to do so. According to the passage we read right there in Hebrews, the source of our sanctification is who? It is Jesus Christ. Now, some people, and this comes down to salvation by grace or salvation by works, will wrongly think that the better they become in life and the more the, the better they are, you know, they don't drink as much as the, his neighbor. Um, the, someone might say, well, I don't say the words that they say, at least, you know, and I don't watch this kind of show that he watches. And before long, you start thinking that you're sanctifying yourself and that you're putting away some bad habits. But can a person truly be sanctified? Can you, can you pursue holiness with God on your own? And the answer is no. Because at the root of all of that is pride. And if a person thinks they can right themselves without Christ, they're putting themselves in the position of Christ. Saying they don't need this one, this Jesus, this one who created everything, the one who put on flesh, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the Christ, the one that is above the angels, because they've got themselves. We can't do that. We can't right our position before God. So we fully rely on Him for our salvation and then we fully rely on Him for our sanctification as well. So it's not something we do without Christ. A person cannot be sanctified without Christ. All right. He continue, we continue on here. He says that is... Or back to Hebrews. If you turn back to Hebrews, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, all the children of God has given me. Here he is saying that this is why he, speaking of Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. You realize we're called brothers with Christ. Elsewhere, we're called children of God, sons of God. And he's saying in these quotations he gives from the Old Testament, the ones that are attributed to the Messiah, that this is why he is not ashamed to call his brothers. His creation, the ones that deserved his wrath, us, dirty, rotten sinners, very God, this Messiah, this Savior, is not ashamed to call us brothers? How is that possible? Because we are sanctified by him. Romans chapter 3 says we get the righteousness of God himself. So the very life that Jesus lived, perfect, never sinned, it's what we get upon salvation. So that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Because we get his righteousness. He gives us that. Only perfect people get to go to heaven. Who amongst us is perfect, right? None. But Christ was. And all who call upon him shall be saved, shall be rescued, shall get his record. So here he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Uh, carry on, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on that flesh. That through death <clears throat> he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus takes on flesh and blood, our very flesh and blood. He lives, He dies, but yet He conquers death for all those who believe in Him. A famous quote from a theologian I like to read, he says this, many people live in fear, and he says of death, he says this, for though the devil still lives and constantly attempts our ruin, yet all his power to hurt us is destroyed or restrained. It is a great consolation to know that we have to do with an enemy who cannot prevail against us. This is a wonderful thing. This is why so many Christians are willing to be martyred. This is why Paul and the disciples and many after them, they could care less about their body actually perishing as long as they were giving the gospel to one more person because what's there to lose? The moment they die, as Paul said, is gain. I am in the presence of God. You're telling me the worst you can do is kill me? The worst you can do is put me to death? Death is nothing. It can't hurt me. I immediately go to be in the presence of God. First Corinthians 15. I'll read this one for you. Uh, 54 through 57 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point here of the writer of Hebrews. Death? Wow, what's that? Don't fear that. Don't be consumed by that. <clears throat> one of the number one fears of people. Due to technical difficulties, the recording ends here.